This morning, we'll be looking at the power of God, and for our scripture reading, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 10, and we'll read verses 1 through 16. When God came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, he introduces himself by one of his many names, and he said, I am God Almighty. And that's been made into a, a song, uh, El Shaddai. You probably have heard that song, uh, God Almighty. And that's one of the titles by which he names himself and which he wants us to use as we address him in his various attributes and roles. This morning, uh, I was reading in Scripture. I have a Bible plan that I drew up years ago, and some of you maybe in past years have seen it. Perhaps used it, but in today's Bible reading, we're up to the time of Nehemiah, when the Jews were brought back to uh, Jerusalem, and he was sent later on then to build the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, during that same time, I believe, uh, we have this psalm that was produced, and if you just turn there for a moment, we'll come back here to Jeremiah, but in Psalm 147, and that's the... Uh, reading we ha- I had uh, read this morning, uh, <clears throat> Psalm 147, it's interesting just reading how this poor remnant of Jews had come back to Jerusalem and how they're trying to build their wall against all the enemies around. They're greatly outnumbered by their foes, but yet they're trusting in Almighty God to protect them. And it says here in this Psalm 147, Praise the Lord. It's good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant. A song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Here they are, the persecuted people brought back. Their wounds are bound up. The city is, again, made to have a defense, a wall about it. And then it goes on to say, the God who does these things does many more things. In verse three, uh, verse 4, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. So here he has this one work where he brings Jews back to Jerusalem. And then another thing he does is he just makes all the stars. It's like... Uh, <laughs> The vast creation of the universe. Also, he did that too, you know. And, uh, you know, for God, one work is just about as hard as the other one. It's, uh, for him, uh, no difficulty to make all the stars, just as there's no difficulty to redeem and bring back the Jews to Jerusalem. He goes on, verse 5, Great is our Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. And as it continues in the next paragraph, it speaks of verse 8. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rains for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food, to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of a horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So here the psalmist, as he 
thanks God for his goodness to Israel, bringing Jerusalem back. Uh, he also then looks about and sees all the creation, the power of God, and all of these things. And then he notices, or he turns his attention to the fact that as God exerts his power, it is also for our salvation. And all the things that we can do, the strength of a man, horse, the legs of a man, the strength that we have, the Lord takes pleasure in those who hope in him. So that work of faith and love and hope that God produces in us is his great work of power. So reading that psalm this morning, it just kind of reminded me of the sermon today, uh, because those are the points that uh, come out of this passage in Jeremiah chapter 10 as well. As we look at this passage back in Jeremiah chapter 10, we see the greatness of God's power in several ways. And the first thing we might mention is found in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 10, and that is when God created the universe. Thus shall you say to them, to these false gods, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, they shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he, the Lord, who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. Those three terms are found also in the book of Proverbs several times, sometimes together in the building of a family, the building of a marriage. It speaks there of the words of understanding and and uh, power and wisdom that the Lord uh, builds us up using those same characteristics. But here, Jeremiah looks at the universe about him and the earth. He says, God has established that. And uh, if you ever build a house, you have to have a foundation. Recently, uh, you know how it is? You, you have a home project that kind of multiplies as it goes. Uh, I had a... Uh, man, uh, the local, he's called the Proctor Handyman, and he does jobs, you know, around houses and things, so he worked for me before, so he came to paint our porch and just to fix up places that needed to get ready to be painted, and then they discovered the wood under the porch was all rotten, you know, so uh, then we discovered other stuff, and before you know it, the job ended up, you know, I think it was like $12,000 by the time he was done. But had to get a whole new beams under there, cement supports and everything. And Anyway, it was a, a huge job. And now it's pretty nice. You can walk on the porch. You're not going to fall through. <laughs> I guess that's worth the money. But <laughs> anyway, I wanted to paint it now, he said, for, for 20 years anyway. So that's good. But... Uh, you know, when you build something that's firm and established, it, it's a bigger job. And But all these foundations, for them to work, they have to rest on something solid. On the, the foundation has to hit some kind of solid basis there. And here we're told in Jeremiah that God has established the earth. He has built it in such a way that it stands. And, and we can live on it and depend on it. So we have verses... In the Psalms, that talk about God has established the earth that cannot be moved. And that's true when you build. Of course, we do have earthquakes and volcanoes and things. But as a general rule, the earth stands firm. 
And uh, back in the days of Galileo, they misinterpreted that verse to mean the earth doesn't rotate or, or revolve around the sun. And had a lot of uh, controversies, unfortunate controversies about that, misunderstanding that scripture. So the scripture is not talking about the earth moving around the sun. It does go around the sun. But it's talking about the firm foundation that you can stand upon it. And it's stable under your feet. So Jesus talked about building your house on the rock and not on the sand. So God has established that firm basis of the ground. Then it says he stretched out the heavens above. And many have said that's compared to a man putting up a tent. Uh, Like the nomads in the desert, they stretch out their tents. And, uh, of course, we know that the heavens above us are actually, it's kind of funny, they actually are expanding, uh, which they just discovered that in the 20th century. They actually are expanding. God is stretching out the heavens in a literal way as well as in a figurative way. But all that great power, they say that the stretching out of the heavens takes about 78% of all the energy in the universe. is dark energy, which stretches out the heavens. And uh, that's great power that far beyond any capacity that we would have. And yet God does all that. His power is revealed in the creation. In, uh, if you turn back for a moment to Psalm 33, one of the beautiful passages that speaks of this truth. Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The power of God has been described as as the fact that God can do anything that he desires without the use of means. He can just do it. He can speak and it happens. And this is the wonderful power of God, far beyond any type of power that we can possess. Compared to us, it's infinite. Like the little quotation of Thomas Watson, he said, All the world cannot make a fly. So just think about that for a minute. (laughs) All the world cannot make a fly. And that's true, isn't it? Uh, We can't even make a fly. But God made all these things. The great greatness of his power. Well, back here in Jeremiah 10, we also see God's greatness revealed in the providence by which he rules the world. In verses 6 and 7, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your name is great in might. Might. Who would not fear you, O king of nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. And then down in verse 13. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings forth the wind from his storehouses. The weather, the great tumults of volcanoes and the earth, the great uh, weather above, storms, tornadoes, hurricanes, all of those things are 
under God's control. And uh, while we know that, uh, that weather is caused by pressure and temperatures and all these things in a, on our level, as far as we observe, that there is so much chaos at the bottom of all that that there is no way that we can control those things. Uh, my father, when he was a young man, actually was in the weather modification business, had his own business, and uh, he was able to stop rain on some occasions and able to cause rain on other occasions if there were the conditions uh, like clouds, for example, uh, necessary to make rain by seeding the clouds. Or you can make it come down or you can overseed the clouds and the clouds will blow away. But even that didn't always work. Uh, and sometimes it went terribly wrong. So uh, now all those things are outlawed. We're not allowed to do stuff like that today. Uh, but it's a puny effort compared to what God does. God controls even the smallest changes of the weather as well as the great ones. Um, Providence is shown not only in the weather, but as he mentions here also, it's shown in human activities and and in the the things of nations, the, the rulings of kings, the wars of peoples. All these things are controlled by God. You probably remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of the Babylonians, how uh, he looked out and he said, this is great Babylon that I have built. And then the Lord struck him with madness. And he went out, remember, for seven years and uh, was like an animal out in the fields. The dew drenched his body and his nails grew long, his hair grew long. And then God restored his mind to him. And he realized that God was sovereign over him. And he wrote that wonderful proclamation in Daniel chapter 4 about how God controls all things. And kings are subject to God's will. And uh, that was published to the people in the days of Daniel. How great it is to realize that God rules. His power extends over all things that we do. So in your family, the, you know, you're the dad and you make the rules. Well, maybe so. <laughs> but there's God ruling over everything in your family. And uh, uh, we always have to recognize that. And sometimes uh, things happen that we don't foresee and can't control. And so nobody actually controls his family. Matter of fact, you don't even control yourself. Uh, you, know, you can make great plans, but uh, what does it say in the book of James? Don't say, I'm going to do this, but say, Lord willing, I'm going to do this. Because God controls our lives. That's his power. It's also seen in this passage in the judgments of God. We see here in verse 10 when it says, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. When God judges, when he speaks in wrath, we cannot resist him. We can only fear him. And this is what nations do. They cannot endure his wrath. And the mightiest nations of the earth tremble before the power of God. We know this is often the case 
in Scripture when God's wrath was revealed against the various nations that were the enemies of Israel. We see it also in the history of Israel itself. And when you look in prophecy, there it speaks about the great judgments on, for example, like Gog and Magog, when they gather together against the city and how God comes down and completely destroys them in those great passages in Ezekiel. So there is this great judgment of God that the nations fear and cannot resist. Uh, In this regard, I have a verse here from Revelation chapter 20. At the end of the history of this dispensation, we have the judgment of God. There's that terrible verse in verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. What kind of a judgment is that? Even the heavens and the earth can't stand before the face of this judge, before whom the nations are called. And those of us who are in Christ, we are shielded from that judgment by Christ's atonement. But for those without Christ, as they stand before the throne of God in their own lack of righteousness, their own sin and rebellion, they will be filled with terror and helplessness before the great power of God. Finally, we notice in this passage, it is seen in his work of redemption. And this is the blessed part of the power of God for us. Look in verses 15 and 16. They, that is the the idols, they are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. The idols will come to nothing and will not be able to judge anybody. But he says, God, the true God, the one who is the portion of Jacob, he will bless the people that are his own. He is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. You know, it's wonderful to know that God has elected a people for his name. And that is Israel in Scripture here in the Old Testament. And we know that those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, though we not be Israelites by race, are children of Israel by faith and are included in these great and precious promises of God. So those who are of faith are children of Abraham. That's a a blessing for us. So we can look at this verse and say, well, I'm in there too. And uh, if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ... He has brought me in to his people. And we believe in the unity then of all those who are saved under Christ being the Israel of God. So this is a great blessing for us to read this, that the power of God, while it judges the wicked, it also delivers the righteous. And all of the dangers that we face and death itself, Christ has overcome those things and will bring us to himself. You know, I was watching an interesting documentary a couple months ago and uh, sort of a comedic one 
But uh, they were talking about in Ireland, when people die, they, they have a week. And uh, they were talking about the origin of this. That's, uh, so, so somebody dies, they don't just bury them, but they put them in a coffin, and then they have, put them on a table, sort of, and, and uh, uh, people can see the, the dead body there. And then they have a big party uh, for uh, a day or two, uh, drinking his health and that sort of thing. I guess not drinking his health. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess that won't work. Uh, drinking uh, to his memory and uh, calling all the good things and all that. And they call it a week. And uh, they were talking about why they call this a week. And they say originally it was because sometimes somebody would die and they'd bury him, but they weren't really dead. And you can imagine uh, if you were in that situation and you come back to consciousness and you're buried under the ground, that would be a terrible experience. And I've had, you know, dreams about that sometimes, how awful it would be just to be. Uh, those of us who have uh, claustrophobia, especially, uh, that's, if I die, I don't, I don't want to be enclosed, you know, so you have that feeling. Anyway, this week, the idea is if they're going to wake up, then you still got a couple of days to do it in uh, before you're finally buried. That's, I think, why they called it a week. But uh, anyway, uh, now why did I mention that? That's, that's the question. Oh, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> people have this fear of death and what might happen to them when they die. And we all do. It's, it's natural not to want to die, to be afraid of those things, the unknown, the dark unknown, the suffering, and then the process of death and all that. Who wants to go through that? We have a natural aversion to it, a natural fear of it. And that's good. God's made us want to live. He's put that desire for life within us, which is a good thing. But as you look at that, how helpless you are when that comes. Uh, I remember when my wife passed away, just the day before, she told me, she said, I think I'm going to die. She just sort of can see it coming. And for several days, she had been, of course, under hospice care there in our house. I'm so glad she could be at home, uh, surrounded by her family. Uh, if you can arrange that, that's, that's the way to do it. But uh, her family was around, but she knew she was dying. And nobody could help her. Nobody could stop it. You know, it's just like, you know, yes, we know. And we pray for her, you know. And, uh, but this is something that we cannot prevent at that point in life. But what do we do? We put ourselves into the hands of Jesus. Jesus said, I will raise you up. When you, when my people, I'm going to save you, and I will raise you up at the last day. So Jesus takes charge of us, and he will bring us through all these experiences. We don't have to worry about being trapped in the ground forever. You know, he's going to bring us through into glory. And we know from Scripture that when we die, we're not going to be scared, but we're going to be rejoicing in Christ's presence. Uh, that's a great comfort. So the power of God, though, can do that. We can't do that. We can't make a fly. We can't make dead people not die. We can't do that. But Jesus has that power. God has that power. And because Jesus is God and man, he has that power to redeem us and to save us and to raise us up again. So this is the great power of God in redemption. In the first chapter of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, 
that ye might walk worthy of the Lord, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Strengthened according to his glorious power. How can you change your life? How can you change uh, from being a sinner to being more and more sanctified? How can we do this? Well, psychologists can't do this for us. Psychiatrists can't do this, but the power of God can. And we believe that the power of God is adequate and more than adequate, not only to have you justified, but then to strengthen you, to have you sanctified. And those sins that we have, we are able by God's power and his grace to suppress more and more. We never become perfect in this life, but we are able to grow in the grace and the strength of Christ because of this power of God. So when we think of the power of God, we should, how do we respond to that? And I think the first thing is we should have great reverence for God. So a lot of people have a flippant attitude toward God. They think he's like a big buddy or something. We can joke around with him. But we should realize the great difference between God and ourselves. That he is so powerful compared to us, so over us, that we should be in awe of him and in reverence. And that's one thing that I appreciate about uh, Reformed worship, is that it's a reverent attitude toward God. It's not just a happy uh, carnival atmosphere when we come to church. It should be happy, joyful, but at the same time, reverent before him. We also respond with compassion for the lost. When you think about the judgments that are coming on the, the sinners that do not know Christ, we should be filled with compassion for them, knowing what lies ahead for them. We feel sorry for an animal that gets hit by a car, don't we? And we feel bad uh, when you see perhaps a, a wounded animal by the side of the road uh, hit by a car. We, and we might even stop and try to help if possible. And if we feel sorry for a a dog that's hit by a car, shouldn't we feel sorry for a, a human being who will suffer forever in hell? And so the Bible tells us that we need to bring the gospel and to pray for those who are lost. And this is a great mission of the church that Jesus Christ himself gave before he passed into heaven. And that is that we should go forth with the gospel, not only to our own friends and neighbors, but also then even to the uttermost ends of the earth. Another response we should have to the power of God is, is to pray, to pray more. Sometimes when we see a problem or something we need or something we want to see happen, we do everything we can to make it happen, but we forget to pray. And when we pray, we are praying to the God who has all power. He can do these things. And that should be our first, what should we say, our first mode of attack when we see a problem that we should pray. And this is true in our own lives as well. When we uh, have needs in our own life, we need uh, to overcome sins. 
we need to overcome temptations. Uh, the first thing we should do is not just read a book. The first thing we should do is pray. Pray to God. And then maybe these books might help us. But uh, pray to the Lord. He has the power. And finally, when we think about our faith, we have faith. I've heard it said, we don't have great faith in a small God. We have small faith in a great God. And we need to have that faith grow because of who God is. We have faith in temptation, faith over our corruptions, our weaknesses, faith over our necessities. Like Jesus said, don't worry about these necessities. God knows you need them. Remember his power. Faith over the fear of man. In all these different areas where we lack faith as we think of God and his great power, it should make us believers, stronger believers in his power and relying then on him. You know, God's power is shown in our lives many times when we ourselves realize how weak we are. Like Paul said, when he had that thorn in the flesh, and he prayed that God would take it away, and God told him, my strength is made perfect in weakness, in your weakness. So when we are weak, perhaps that's most when we trust in God's strength, and therefore we are strongest. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we see that Jesus Christ himself subjected himself to weakness. He had all power, but yet he came to the cross and he allowed his enemies and those who hated him to mock him, to scourge him, to crucify him. And he succumbed to death, the inglorious death of the cross. And yet, in that weakness and in that sacrifice... He fulfilled God's purposes. And because of the covenant of grace that God had made with him, he was able to bring us salvation and himself be raised from the dead and glorified. And it's a wonderful thing when we take the Lord's Supper that we see the symbols of his weakness, but also of his power. Because it is through Christ and through his spirit, even as we partake of these elements, that we are strengthened and given more and more sanctifying power to overcome sin and to remain faithful to Christ. Let us pray.